0: Okay. Welcome back, everybody. This is the Mysteria podcast. You know who I am. I'm Marcus Da Silva, and I'm joined today by uh, uh, the literal definition of a lifelong friend. <laughs> so, Literally. That's right. So, uh, Dr. Aaron Verma, it's a pleasure to... I mean, it's been a while since we've seen each other, so it's it's nice to catch up and to chat.
1: Oh, it's great to be here, especially live with you. Absolutely.
0: So you have known me the as long as my parents because you're at the hospital the day that I was born.
1: The day you came out, I was right there, I think. An hour or two hours after you popped out, I was in the room with you. And, and you, you knew died. I was troubling right away. <laughs> right away. Right away. I knew it's going to be a long, long friendship, but it's going to be fun of trouble with you.
0: <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> so we got... Um, we discussed prior, we got kind of like two kind of big uh topics that we'll get. At. I mean, we'll get into a whole bunch of stuff, but sort of the the two things that I uh wanted to talk to you about. And the the first one, I was I was thinking about it. And and the entire time that I've known you, I've never had any type of discussion about it. And not for any reason, but it's just kind of one of those things, you know. And so I'm I'm really excited to get to talk to you about. It. I mean, we'll keep it a mystery till we get into it. But uh, okay. yeah, I'm just I'm really looking forward to it. Cause I was thinking about that, and I'm like, man, you know, what an interesting perspective.
1: No, I think what we we're going to be discussing next little bit. Yeah, uh, yeah, we've never talked about it. I don't think I've even talked to your parents that deep about it either. Mm-hmm. So I just. Knowing you guys as friends, and that's what we have been. And when we get together, it's more for fun and good times.
0: That's right. Which you always
1: have. And
0: but yeah, it's going to be great. So I think the I think let's just start. Uh, we'll we'll kind of I'm just sort of curious about your childhood, and we'll kind of sort of start from the beginning, and we'll, okay. we'll kind of go to to your twenties, and then we'll kind of really get into it. Sure. So tell us a little bit about where you grew up and how that was for you.
1: Okay, well. I was born in Kamloops, uh, way back in the 60s, 1964 and grew up there in, you know, in my dad was a physics and math teacher at the high school and mom was a uh, housewife at the time. So I had two brothers. One is a year younger than me and one is two years younger than me. And we grew up in Kalamazoo in 1968, uh, we moved to Nigeria in Africa. Oh. My dad, um, was sent over by uh, SIDA, the government agency for development. Um, Because of the Civil War in Nigeria, uh, they needed to um, start uh, physics programs back in the universities. So he got uh, sent by the government first for two years to town just on the uh, southern edge of the Sahara, Khamadugri. So we stayed there for two years. and. Just when we were planning to come back to Canada and Kamloops, he got another two-year extension to the University of Lagos, the capital of Nigeria, right on the Atlantic near the Gold Coast. So we were there for another two years. So I did my first first four years of education there, which was a lot different than here. It was based on the uh, British system. So every year you got ranked in your class and... uh, Back then, it was discipline with a stick, and I remember all that, all that stuff. I got in trouble a lot. Uh, and we came back in 72 and then went into grade three and just grew up in campus as a regular kid. Um, you know, playing sports after school, um, going to practice, doing that in school activities. Life like what it was back in the 70s and early 80s, slow paced. Mm-hmm. Had a paper route, did that, uh, rode my bike around the neighborhood, left the house with my brother's eight in the morning, would not return till nine ten at night, just come back for lunch and dinner. So just a regular childhood full of fun. And, you know, and, and that's the way it was, right till grade 12. And when you talk about from an education perspective, it was a little bit different because for me, education didn't really click until about grade 9 and grade 10 when I finally discovered, like, you know, we, I got competitive with a couple other uh, guys in my class. So once the competition started, we played sport together on the same teams in school. So there's competition there, but there's also competition in academia. So once you got that competition in academia, you wanted to do well in every subject. So when that started, that sort of set my path. And I remember my dad saying to someone about 20, 30, 20, 25 years ago, he was never worried about me after grade 10. (laughs) Because he said, he remembers one night I came home from a game, I think in uh, Clearwater or somewhere. So I came back at 1030 at night, right away, skipped dinner, I went straight to my desk, started working. And he he said, he said, he he remembers telling my mother, that's it, I'm not worried about him he's on his path, he'll do fine. And that's the way it was, so grade 11, grade 12. I knew what, I wanted to go to university, so I just picked up the courses I needed to pick up. Played sports, did my things um, outside. Um, you know, we did a lot of activities outside, mountain bike, uh, dirt bike riding, you know, playing street hockey, basketball, you name it. We just did things that kids did in the 70s and 80s. And so in 1982, I graduated and went um, I was about 18 years old at that point. Um, I applied to Caribou College first, wanted to stay home. So I thought, so I'll do first two years of science there. Now real one of the big reasons I did it because it was cost, there it cost me $300 for a whole year. So I said, why wouldn't you take that? You know, $150 a term. So that was, that was a lot of fun. Oh. So, you know, this was back in 82. So life was good, stayed at home. University uh, college was only 20 minutes from ho- the house. Went there, did my classes, came back, studied, and formed a good group of friends yeah, from other schools. Because it's interesting, when you went to your high school, those other friends were sort of the enemies at other schools that you played sports against. But when you got to college, you all hung out together. So I'd be going to their houses across the river, come to my house studying and this and that. So I had a lot of close friends from other schools. So did my two years there of science, then transferred to UBC in 1984 um, into biochemistry. And then uh, com- completed a two-year degree there in biochemistry and got my BSc. And that's when I started in biochemistry at that time. I would say 80 to 90 percent of the students there were either going to go to research or medicine. So... At that point, if you would given me 10 million bucks and said, are you gonna go into research? I would have said no. (laughs) No way in hell would I have gone into research or work on my PhD. That'd be the last thing I would have done. Medicine, I was giving some serious thought to. But one of the things that with me at the time, doing a biochem degree, I never got the chance to do some of the other courses I was really interested in, such as psychology, economics, um, sociology, anthropology. Took about eight, nine of those courses. Yeah, I took a, a heavy load. I just wanted to learn. Yeah, I just wanted to learn. Yeah, like I just wanted to learn. You know, I wanted to know what economics was all about. You know, I took a, a thirty-level year level course there. Took an oceanography course. Geochemistry course, two anthropology courses, a psych psych course. So I just wanted my fill of university life. So after I did that, they said, "Well, I got to settle down here and pick a route." <laughs> you know, so I know. So I wrote the MCAT, did well, and then, so I had to bridge that year with some subjects. So if I'm going to go into medicine, I should be in the healthcare sort of sector, sort sort of thing. So. A neighbor of ours in Dallas was a pharmacist, and he he owned a pharmacy. And he suggested, why don't you just try pharmacy? And, you know, if you like it, you can stay in it. You don't like it, you can go to medicine. But I said, okay. So at that time, in the 80s, pharmacy had a, a certain program that if you had done a BSc and you had accumulated enough credit... You can do something called a transfer year, where you can use do two years in once. So I can complete year one and two in pharmacy in one year. Because all I needed to take was the core course in pharmacy. And because I had all the other electives and you know the physiology and all that, that was done. So that's what I did. I did the transfer courses. I mean, I mean the transfer program, did the course and did my first two years. And at the same time, I wrote the MCAT. So then I applied for medicine in uh, in April around that time, okay and then at that that time, unfortunately, I got hurt. so I was living in a um, on campus, and one of my roommates had a friend who just bought a car and he said, "Let's go see my friend's new car. We went in it, and I guess with a new car and um We came along Chancellor Boulevard, and someone was speeding and cut in front of us, and forced our car off the road into the forest. And all I remember is us going to the trees. And when I woke up, um, I had no feeling from my neck down. So I knew right away there was a spinal cord injury. So I became a quadriplegic at that time. So, um, no, I was in the hospital for about. uh, and it was in Shaughnessy for a month in the critical care area. So got going there, and once got out of the woods, sort of thing—the dangerous part. Um, I went to GF Strong for rehab. Now it was that during that time that I found out that I got into medicine at UBC and at UFA. Well, of course, couldn't do it at that time, so I just put a. Hold on at UBC for giving a hold it for a couple of years. So that one year um, while I was at GF Strong, I only stayed there for six months to rehab because I was serious about rehabbing. I did it well, and then oh, after six months, I I found that just being there was not beneficial for me because um, the clientele there was a little bit different. There were people hurt. There's a lot of drugs going on. And it's a different lifestyle. So what really saved me during that time was my mom and dad and my family we were close. And so naturally, my mom and dad we were from Kamloops. They moved down here. They rented a place. So after six months, I just moved in there. So what I did is during the days, I would go into GF trying and do my rehab and go home in the afternoons. We can spend time with the family. And started doing what I wanted to do and wanted to get back into academics, education, and that. Because I did a lot of reading at that time. If you'd ask me, did I read a book before that? Never. I don't think I read a book in, in a whole book. Once I got out of rehab at home, I was reading a book a week. Just putting them down and topic after topic, getting into different things and eventually getting to you know, Richard, Richard Bach and more philosophy type stuff and thinking stuff and material. Kept reading those sort of books. And after a while, you know, I, it took me about two years of rehab and um, reading of that. So I got strong enough to say, OK, I want to go back to school. OK, then so the question was, where would I go? You go back, try to go back into medicine, or try something different. Well, if I said medicine, I said, "Well, it's just it was too heavy a program from just me recently being hurt, um, having to do their hours and that." I think it'll be, as it be too hard. And then, luckily, I did, when I was in pharmacy school before, I had met a couple of professors there. We became close with. So, and they kept tabs on me. And when they found out I was ready to go back, the one professor had become dean in pharmacy, um, Frank, Frank Abbott. So naturally he just comes to me, you gotta go back into pharmacy. Get that degree and we'll go from there, okay? And so he forced me to get that degree. So it took me another four years to finish pharmacy school can so in first year I took a couple of courses. next year I took four courses. so it took me about um, four years to just get everything back together so in nineteen ninety five I had done pharmacy school and then I applied for a clinical residency in in hospital for pharmacy got a position at St Paul's where naturally I met your dad. that's where we became friends and you then I'd research together but um That that was a very good clinical experience for me. So after that time, I had to make a decision. Do I uh, work in a hospital pharmacy somewhere or do something else? Well, I applied for a couple of positions in the hospitals. Didn't get them. So didn't worry about it. But it was interesting. The pharmacy school came after me then. Why didn't you go do some grad work? Now you remember what I said the 11 years before that I would never do graduate research. Well, guess what came and bit me back in the butt, grad school, and uh, so the uh, associate dean of um, of research, the dean, you now the convinced me going to research, and I said, well, if I go in research, I want to do clinical research, and that that time in um, in the faculty. The only faculty member that did research was Dr. Mark Levine. And very, very bright guy. And you know, he's a pure academic. So we, he, he sort of interviewed me over uh, several weeks because he never takes a student right away. He just wants to see what they like. So naturally, we were a good fit. So he took me on and we had a project looking at thrombocytopenia or low platelet counts in the intensive care unit was specifically looking at heparin, uh, the drug called heparin and anticoagulant. So I did research on that. So, you know, once I started working with him and I did my master's with him for about two years, got my master's. And then naturally when I was writing out my master's project, it was much longer than we had expected. And so he uh went to the associate in a graduate graduate study and said, Well, Aaron's work is this long. Can we now switch it to a PhD? And she's and naturally, she said, yes, let's extend it to a PhD. So I got my master's, then went on a PhD route. Another four years later, got the, got, got the PhD and you now became uh You know, got my doctor of philosophy in in clinical pharmacy and statistics, clinical modeling and all that. And then the decision was, well, what do you want to do? Do you want to become a research associate somewhere? Now, if if I was on my feet and I was able-bodied, I would have gone to a school in the States or abroad and studied under a couple of people there just to learn more. There's a couple of schools I wanted to go to, like UCSF, University of California, San Francisco, I wanted to go to, or um, there are a couple of schools like McGill, they had a good epidemiology program. There are a couple of programs I was looking at, um, even in Massachusetts, there are a couple of schools there um, that I was looking at modeling. But because I it was hard to travel, move, especially with the quadriplegic, I said, well, that avenue is shut. So what do I do? Uh, now, at this point, luckily for me, in pharmacy, they had started a new curriculum. And they had some new courses. called. And one of the streams were case-based courses where you need someone to develop cases on clinical scenarios and teach. Now, while I was a grad student, I did a lot of teaching and I taught for a couple of professors during my TA ship. And at that point, I got a lot of teaching under under my belt. So I was very comfortable when this new program started applying for that position. So in uh, 2005, I applied for a third year coordinator of the cases and got that job. And that's how I became a professor and I've been at UBC since in in various roles. And, uh, now I run two courses on my own and a couple of modules in the new program.
0: Okay. So I got to so we got to back it up. I got I got so many, I'm writing notes. You're writing, I'm like, write notes. I'm like, okay, I got so many questions. So here we go. So what I'm curious about, um, so when you got into the accident, you were 24, 24, 24. And, and like you said, you, you. Sounded like you knew right away that it was just not, you know, this just not good.
1: Oh, right away. You know, I had enough uh, medical knowledge in, in my head that the minute I got up and I tried to lift my arms, fell back down. Um, and I tried to touch my leg, no feeling. And I remember the, the uh, emergency crew, the paramedics right beside me. And I said, you better put a, sp- a spine board. I knew it would happen. I said, I heard my spinal cord. I just be careful. So I knew enough about it at that time that I didn't know it was permanent, but um, I knew it was serious. Right. And was anyone else injured in the accident? There, there were two other guys. The driver was unhurt. And the other guy, I was in the, I was in the front passenger seat. Now, I was trapped in with a seatbelt. Wow. So that actually saved my life. Because I don't know how, the, just I guess the sheer jarring broke my neck. Um, so it kept me in place. The guy in the back seat actually got tossed out of the car about 75 feet. And he had some leg and hip injuries, but he recovered in about two, three weeks. Whoa. So, so uh, you know, the way I looked at that was my destiny right there. What was meant to be was meant to me at that point. Because I can, I can remember that day. It was April 27th. I can remember everything that happened that day. And everything was meant for that to happen. Because it was, in, it was funny. Because the friends I had in pharmacy, because I was in a transfer program, I'd already taken some courses. They had to write an exam in that course that afternoon. Now. Usually, because I was done exams the day before. So, usually we hang out together. And I was ready to go home two days later back to campus. So, I was cleaning up the apartment in the morning. And they, my friends told me after our exam, came and meet us at the pit, which is the uh, sort of the bar at the campus. Well, I finished cleaning up, I went to the pit. Well, the lineup was long. And, you know, I could have stayed in the lineup to wait to get in. But I said, that's too long. I'm going home. Okay, So I went home, and that's when I met my roommate's friend, and he got the new car. Now, if I had just stayed in that line, this would not have happened. If I had, and there's a lot of times that I went, say, to the pit walking back home, i stop up at the gym or shoot some hoops or just do something different. That day, I didn't. I just went home. This Something was dragging me home. I just went back to where we're living. And the minute he came there, said, you want to go for a ride? I said, well, I'm still cleaning up. I said, well, what the heck? Because he was saying, it's my new car. Come and check it out. Sure, you go to see somebody's new car. So I thought it would only be 10 minutes. Well, those five, 10 minutes changed my life. Now, I could look at it two ways like, right? did it change my life for the bad or for the good? So, for me, if I'd, nothing had happened, most likely I would have become a physician, a doctor. Would I have been a good one? I don't know. Cause that's the route I would have taken. Now, if you'd asked me, would you want to become a professor teacher? I would say no. But it was in my blood. My grandfather was a teacher, my father's a teacher. When I went to high school, I taught my teammates around me math, social science. You know, they always come to me, even in first university, when those other um, friends I had from other schools came to the house, it was to our house, so I'd work with them. And I, and I do remember grade nine, 10, 11, I never had to study for exams, because I'd be teaching my friends this stuff. So you're teaching them, you don't have to study, you're doing it already. So it was naturally in me all that time. And so when you say, did I have to work to become a professor or teacher? No, it's it's in the blood, it's natural. Um, I can talk to a class of five, 10, 20, 200, and I'm comfortable to do a lecture. Um, to teach, if they ask me, well, this is your lecture on this topic, well, I'll give, the, I'll give that same lecture to the class, and say I have to give it to two, three different classes. I'll have no trouble saying, I will not give the same lecture, but the message will be the same each time. So I don't, when I teach, I don't memorize stuff without, I, I, I believe you've got to teach something, you've got to know it. You have to understand it. And you're gonna be able to explain it. So that's the philosophy I have. If you really understand it, you can teach anyone. And that, that was what was in me. And I do remember when uh, a number of people asked me, well, what was my PhD project on? I was able to tell it in layman's terms to other people about platelet count. And they was well, they appreciated that I was able to, you know. Telling in a different type of way. And then if I'm talking to somebody in the field, I could you know, use the uh, appropriate scientific lingo and talk there, so I was comfortable. So, did that accent, was a good thing or a bad thing? Well, in my eyes, I think me good came out of it because I would have met my wife, I wouldn't have the three kids I have now, I wouldn't have the life. Yes, it's a hard life, but um, life is not meant to be easy you know there's peaks and valleys and you know you, you dealt your cards. you're going to pay them and that's why I look at it okay, each day you dealt your cards you got to pay your cards that day so this was meant for me and I'm not going to cry over it I'm going to take it and run with it and see how far I can get
0: I might have a bit of a tear, but that's a good way,
1: <laughs> yeah, that's a good well, way you know, because,
0: I, I, you know, and so, you know, we've I, like, we mentioned at the beginning, you know, we, we've known, I I've known you and, and, you know, Gita and, and the kids too now, you know, my whole life. And so it's, it's really, you know, the perspective that you, you get from that is so interesting and, and, you know, one of the things that, uh, you know, my friends kind of give me a bit of a hard time about, cause I'm, I'm not shy about reading, um, and, and studying like really, so like I'm doing a bit of a hit, I'm on a history stint right now. And so I'm reading about like genocides and like really, really horrific stuff, like terrible, terrible stuff. Yeah. And, you know, I, I, but the reason I'm drawn to it is because there there's truth in it and even though it's horrible and it's difficult, you get a very different perspective. And I think probably the the best thing, or, you know, of, of reading about horrible things that have happened, you get a great appreciation for the things that you have and all the, I mean, just, you know, 25 year old kid grew up growing up in Vancouver. Mm. I've never really had a difficult, I've never had to worry about my safety and, you know, your basic needs as a human being are just met. And people, we take that for granted. We, you know, we, we definitely take that for granted. It's not, not something that you should be, but you definitely can, if you allow yourself to. And one of the things that I always think about is that now that I have a nephew and especially getting ready for the, the next record attempt that I'm doing, I'm journaling a lot and writing, writing things Mm -hmm. down. And, and I've said to my friends that, that I don't you know, you you wake up every day. It's a gift. It's a great thing to be alive and to be healthy and to go and bring give your best to the people around you and to the world and and so far as you're capable of doing. And you never know what
1: can actually happen. Like I, I think that way. I really do think that way. Oh, it's 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 a very good thing. It's a very positive thing. Because one thing I tell my kids, I don't. Really care what you do in life, as long as you have a positive impact on society, have some positive impact, because that's what we're meant to be. We're here to make a positive impact. So, like you said, be thankful for each day you get up, and do something positive that day. And that that you could say, okay, I, I did something, I did something that day, constructive or meaningful. You know, just have, have that attitude. Now, it's not going to happen every day, mm-hmm. but we as humans cannot live on that, you know, that peak all, all the time. We're not meant to be. Like I said, the peaks and valleys in our lives, and we got to deal with each one of those. But even when you're in those valleys of tough, i you know, you got to look at the positive side of it. There are going to be, as you of people worse off than us, way worse. And, you know, even though I got hurt, there are other people who got hurt way worse than I did. At least, you know, I, I got my brain saved and everything. You know, if I didn't, I couldn't be doing what I did now. So I'm thankful for that. And, you know, if I was given that gift for my brain being saved, I better do something with it. You know, it's like I keep telling my, my daughter and my so that, you know, if you are, have given some athletic gifts from God or whatever you've got that talent don't let it go to waste use it as best you can you know to the maximum you can and then and go with it from there just use it don't let any talent you have whether it's in academia whether it's in you know uh, sports or anything else any other part of social life you have to use that you know and be thankful what you have because there are others in the world who who don't have that. Because we lived in Nigeria, Nigeria for four years. One thing I'm thankful, we went there. We saw what the other side looks like. With no money, with nothing. Can we see what people look like there, in Africa at that time, after the Civil War? No, I was only four when I went there and came back on eight. So a lot of those visions that I still see, I, I just glued in my head of what others were living look like, you know, but they were happy. Mm -hmm. One thing I know, they were happy. So, you know, as a kid, I didn't understand that. But now I can see that in their era at that time where they lived. Yes, they didn't have much, but they were happy. So, you know, what more? So, and I'm going to cry because I don't have this and that while I'm living here. So that's what I'm trying to instill in my children. Be thankful what you have. You know, we don't have, we don't have it. But we're so, so damn lucky to have what we do. You know, and, uh, and that's what I like to, uh, when I teach, I teach in that light sort of thing in a positive way. Um, Try to get the students to think, you know, positively and not, you know, whine about things, just, you know just just do it you know i'm the professor i've given you this just get it done don't worry but if you have another exam that day or another this or that just do it sort of thing
0: i was watching a really interesting documentary the the other day actually and one of the things that was mentioned on it was if you can help one person make make a if you can help one person avoid a mistake and aid them in making a better decision then you speaking up was worth it you know and so i've always liked that like i i understand you know and, and that's why even like with my journal now in my head i'm like well you know if anything were ever to happen which it was kind of a bit of a weird way of thinking but i genuinely believe it at least I hope there's something in there, and I particularly have my nephew in mind, and he's my godson also. So you got the, I got the yeah. double responsibility there, <laughs> which is fantastic. Uh, but you know, I, I think, man, you know, like if you can give somebody something to help them, because I've been on the receiving end of so much from you, knowing you my whole life. Re- reading other people's work works of fiction like things that have helped me and the impact is it you can change a life you know literally that that's that's how impactful that stuff can be and so to sit around and to you know woe is me you know that
1: that's a dangerous thing to it's just a bit dangerous you know oh no i agree to 100 percent And that's a good philosophy, what we just said, to keep that in mind, is that, you know, to help others, is do the best you can, and, and, you know, pay it forward, or pass it forward, you know, you're doing it to your nephew, I'm trying to, you will one day with your kids, Mm -hmm. you know, just even raising them, I'm trying to do it the right way. Now, I'm not saying I'm 100% perfect, but there's no way I'm that, but, You know, just the way we were brought up, and I see how our friends brought their kids up. Um, As my mother always said to me, take the good out of everybody and blend it together. Mm -hmm. And she always said it in one light to me. People have come to Canada, okay? What Canada was always built on was the culture of people bringing the best from every other country and trying to make... That's, that's how a Canadian is. Hmm. Getting the best blend from everything. So, and that's what she said to me. I can remember that in the 70s. Take the best from everybody. Okay, from every culture and try to build it in our lives. And that's the way we were brought up in Caloops. So, very secular, open-minded to everything. And that's what I saw. Now, my dad being a physics teacher, which even widened the, a horizon for me in terms of thought. You know, we were talking to my dad about string theory. <laughs> you know, is God real? The universe? We were talking about this when I was nine, 10, 11 years old, going on family trips. You know, we'd be talking about why is the sky blue and what is the meaning? Are we alone here? What What's the universe? The big bang. You know, like we were getting educated doing those trips. And right there, you know, then, the question is, well, for me was, is religion really needed, or can you just be spiritual in the big scheme of things? You know, and that's where, as I was doing more reading on um, quantum mechanics, you know uh, fundamental physics, putting them together, you know what, what is what is gravity? you know i've done I did a lot of work on that. um my in my grade twelve project was, about alternate universes you know, wormholes so I just got interested in that stuff so this is what I've been reading in the last three, four years that I did get my hands on you know, about the um, fundamental physics blending with quantum mechanics you know, and uh, um, is time real? Okay, now uh, time if you look at it from a um, fundamental physics point of view it's not, it's it's man-made. You know, how, well, what is time? Because when you go to a large object in, in the universe, well, space bends, so where's time there? So, you know, all the when you start thinking the big picture, so what, well, where's God in this thing? And, you know, I remember when living in, um, in university in 1984 to 86, I stayed in a place called Vancouver School of Theology, or VST. And I got in there because I, my father knew um, a Baptist uh, minister, reverend, and we we're fa- family friends, and I was able to live there. And you know, um, most of the people who stayed there, yet yeah, they're quite religious. But I remember one of them asked me one day, "Let's go to church." Okay, fine, I'll go with you. And I remember going with a group of guys went one Sunday. I think evening went to the St. Mark's, then went to church and, you know, and they go in there to go a couple of guys who well, I got, I got to confess my sins. Okay, fine. And he did his thing, came back. And now on the way back, he goes, wow, well, we're, we're, clean now. And that and got me thinking, you know, you could commit some act and just by going and confessing, coming out, you're clean all of a sudden. Uh, where's the, uh, the ownership and the integrity of what Jesus did? It just didn't make sense to me. Now, so, and I apply this to all religions, to be honest, you know, because um, I was born a Hindu, and, you know, they worship idols and that. And my mom said, no, there's no such thing as an idol. And growing up with my dad, with the physics side, well, where's God? <laughs> let's, question every, let's question the big picture, you know. Yeah, you know, is gravity, God, or what's the universe? Let's start asking the big questions. So when I look at my life, it's based on that. Like everything we're doing right now is just a, um, it's just a play because nothing is real right now. If you look at the universe. Molecules are moving. You know, things are moving. Particles are moving around. Nothing is stable. It's just, we just, everything is in constant motion. And you blink your eye, you open your eye, it's a brand new vision you're seeing. You know, it, I know it's deep, but that's the way I look at it. So, you know, when I, I try to tell my kids, just try to do the best and see the best in everybody. Because we can get so tied down with negative thoughts and feelings, you, you won't get anywhere. you won't achieve anything. It's, just brings you down, and uh, you know, I—I'll be honest. When they get, I get in that rut sometimes. But then you know, then I think about it. Well, what am I doing? You know, what am I getting uptight about? And just, you know, just let it go and just move on. So, you know, that's too, that's my way of thinking through things.
0: And so I'm really curious. Then, so that, that's really interesting. That so you're you're uh, grappling with even like you, you you know, grade 10, 11 to, well, even when you're you're a little kid, you're starting to, uh, you know, entertain these, or grapple with those questions. And then certainly as you're getting a bit older, you know, you're writing your report on, you know, that's all, that's awesome stuff. I'm just thinking here, I'm like, man, that's just so interesting, you know? And, and so then you get a little bit older, a little bit older, you have your accident and how did, all of those things that you had either learned or at the very least contended with, because I mean, those are answers that there's really no answer to, but at least you can entertain some answers or possible answers or theories, you know, and, and start to grapple with those questions at the very least. How did that shape your just, how did that shape handling your situation?
1: Yeah. Um, well, okay, I had the accident here in Vancouver. My parents were in Edmonton, uh, packing my brother up to come back to Calumet. And when I went into the uh, ER in, sh- in Shaughnessy, the doctor asked me who put, put a contact. And I just gave one of my classmates number, to talked to his father and that boy's father, Called my parents in Edmonton, told them the news, so that my parents could fly out that night. So they flew out the next morning, the twenty-eighth. And the first thing I, re- the first thing I remember, I was in the, I think ICU area. My neck was pinned back, just laying still. My mom comes in, looks at me, and just grabs my hand. All she said was, "Everything's going to be all right. It's all fine. Okay, just." She just said, think positive. Does my dad, he comes in, he said, this think positively, nothing else. Even though my mom I heard went and cried a bit after that. But all I heard for the next three, four days from them was just the positive um thoughts. And so based on their positive thoughts and what I grew up with, it just I did not get into a depressed or a negative thinking state, I was always looking forward. Let me get out of the ICU. Let me get on to my rehab. Let me get back into school. I always had that goal in front of me, that positive thing. So family was there the whole time. very, Very interesting also, a lot of friends I had in pharmacy came and saw me every single day. Okay? And there's one friend that came and saw me every day for one year. Every single day. Kept coming. His name was Chuck Winternitz. Really nice guy. Every single day, kept coming to see me. So when you have family, you have friends of good support structure, and you have that background thinking, it allowed me to deal with that situation in a positive light. So I did not let it get me down. Okay, I said, well, I have to use a wheelchair now, but my mind is still thinking. And... I can think the same way I did as before. So it may take me longer to do it, but I will get it done. Okay. I can't go into med school. Yeah. Well, that Y cryo spilled milk is done. Okay. Let's move to the next one because going to pharmacy, let's do pharmacy first. Let's do the residency. Okay. Now, when I was in pharmacy school, I had no thoughts of grad school. When I was in my doing the clinical pharmacy, In the hospital, there's no thoughts of grad school. Now, it's interesting, the research I did with your father sort of set to track me, I could do research. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, we went on war with that project. Okay, I'm sure UBC heard about that. And the um, faculty I'd met there earlier, who I must have made a good impression on, coming back and saying, come into pharmacy, finish your degree, Going go to grad school from there. So, you know, then grad school, they get, can get, call me back to, department, to grad school. I, I completed grad school. And it just set me. So everything was lined up nicely for me. And with family, with friends, there was nothing negative on the way, which I am so thankful for. So, you know, so if you keep the, the positive and good light, it just keeps following you along you know so and so you know how you deal with it yeah i know uh, I'm, I'm not upset it happened it's too bad it couldn't go the other way but it happened so let's make the best of it and i told my kid if i hadn't gotten hurt they wouldn't be born hmm. cuz my life would be different so let's just enjoy this so much now this is our life okay that other life you know doesn't even exist you know, it may exist in some other universe, something I don't know. But it, where we are now, this is the way we are.
0: It must be unreal too, to to look back. You know, like that's the thing, because, you know, like, I mean, I'm 25, right? So it's like, man, you know, it, it's, it makes me think a lot. I, and, uh, you know, it just must be really interesting for you, especially now. And now your kids are getting older, too. You know, and, and dealing with, you know, all the things that you have to deal with as a parent and, you know, them going to school and all the, you know, yeah. dealing with other people and all that stuff, you know, but man, it must just be so interesting. Like every once in a while, just like,
1: wow, you know, we're here now. It's Well, When I know exactly what you said, when I think back, I can think of very vividly because you know, I, I've got a good memory. What happened in Nigeria? I can just paint it in a picture right now in front of me. What happened in the 70s in 80s? What life was like? Hippies around? <laughs> uh, how the long hair? The dude with a uh, uh, jean jacket with a marijuana leaf at the back? <laughs> you, know, you know, these are guys I went to school with. Now, here's something that's interesting. That school, uh, that uh, Indian, uh, that residential school in in Kamloops, with found those bodies about one year ago, only a mile and a half from our house. Oh, wow. I played on that field. Oh, my God. I played on that field, I don't know how many times, with the other First Nation kids. When I was growing up, we befriended a lot of First Nation, we were friends with a lot of First Nation guys. I became friends with them. We played hockey street hockey, football. So when I remember grade 12, first year college, second year college, because we were still friends with them, they had the key and the, um, access to the field and the gyms. So we would go on the Indian Reserve to play soccer, football, hockey, in the gym. They called us over. So... You know, we, especially with my, I remember my dad, let me just step back a bit. My dad used to give up his time to go to the council in, Indian Reserve to school to tutor for free. Okay, once a week. And we'd go with him. So right there, we got into to the culture that there was nothing there. We were close to indigenous peoples and respected their. Like I totally understand their spirituality. I was same. Wavelength of them, how they teach, treat nature. What what are we all about? I'm just dead on point with them. So you know, when we befriended them and went to school with, played with them in the field. So you know, we were there with them weekly playing. So when I heard about that that story last year, yeah, it it hurt me a bit too. Like we were playing on that field, and what was underneath there? You know that. Like the atrocities that happened, like why? And but you know, we are now here. We have to learn from history. We have to learn from this what happened. So that's what I'm telling. You know, I, Anya, my oldest daughter, they had a project in school about this. I said these things are to be learned from. We cannot go back and change time. That's done, okay? But it was done for a reason for us to learn now. So move forward that this does not ever happen again. And you can help out people like that down the line. So that's you no know, use it as a lesson in learning. Don't, um, um, no, I don't like people getting caught up. This happened, we gotta change this. We gotta do that. Um, we need an apology. Yes, apology, but we can't be stuck on that. Let's help move forward. So no one has to go through that again. And the people who did suffer, let's help them out now. This sort of thing, though, so, you know, that's my thought on that aspect. And I don't know what topic we're talking about, but you just went down that road.
0: No, it's good. I like the tangents. The tangents are good. Well, no, and, and I agree 100%. I mean, And it sounds, it, well, and it's so interesting when you talk about, recovering from your accident and family and friends being incredible and that communal support that you had. And that's so critical to, well, I mean, virtually every indigenous culture. I mean, there there's even down into the States too, like the, the core, I mean, there's obviously, you know, cultural differences, but the core principles remain the same where there there's that aspect of we support each other and we help each other move. We fight with each like fight with each other. We support each other. You know we're here and and you just move forward like that. I mean, man, that is insane totally, totally. that you played on that. Wow, that is just holy cow. I, I mean, how did when you found that I know, out, you must have just been floored.
1: I was I was shocked. Yeah, I called my brother. I said, like, "Did you see that?" What they found in that field. I said, you know, it was unreal. We we had heard, but we didn't know these stories. Yeah. That depth. We know this happened, but I did not know the bodies were there. And it it just floored me it just, you know, that day just like it was it was shocked. I was in shock for a bit. Wow. You know, and you always think, man, if I can go back and change that, I would. hmm Wow so, yeah. Oh, geez. Well, yeah,
0: (laughs) yeah, I know. I know. Crazy. But I want to, I just want to, one thing that I thought about just switching gears a little bit is that what I thought, and one of the things that you said was that when you were recovering, you were focused on the next goal. So whatever that next goal was, you know get out of ICU, get out of the, you know, complete your rehab, get back to school, like these objectives that you could look towards and give you. Well, and and that's the, like, even with my hand motion, it's forward. Yeah. It's forward thinking. And, and I'm wondering your competitive, see, I don't want to say your competitive nature because we all possess it it's just a matter of yeah. who taps into it and how you tap into it but we all possess that all we're all human we all have that ability with that that competitiveness to to go and achieve and i'm curious with you did you i don't know if it was conscious or unconscious or if it was just something that you did but that competitiveness was that something that was helpful to you
1: yes um it drove me hmm. That competitiveness drove me. Now, it I did. I played sports. That was good, but that competitiveness in sports was not what it could have been. I could have been much better if I used that competitive in sports when I grew up. From what I know now, I could have done a much better job when I was younger playing sports. But that competitive in academia was different. That, um, I just wanted to be the best in everything. Like I remember in grade nine, grade 10, grade 11, writing math tests. Remember they used to give it a three hour math test, math test and the year, I would complete them in 45 minutes. I that that was my goal. I want to be the first one done. Okay. And I remember the first few times the teacher coming review your answers. I, and I, uh, I'll be honest, I was one of those students who hardly ever reviewed. So whatever I put down first is likely right. And if I didn't know it, it's gonna be wrong anyway. So that was my attitude, right to grade 12. I was, even in university, I was usually the first one done exams, okay? Because I, you know, when I studied, I studied hard. But I studied in a way that I understood the information. I didn't try to memorize. I memorized what I needed to, but I understood it. And I that the drive was to finish first and to finish top of the class. So my here's, here's, here's an example of my competitiveness. First year at UBC, so my third year in your university biochem. Now back then, the way they gave exam. It was a 10% midterm, 90% bio. Oh, oh, I know. Oh. Yep. A couple of my courses like that. Okay. I said, whoa. Okay. So I said, this is my first exam at UBC. Okay. It's the midterm in biochem. So man, I want to do well. So I studied hard. So I went, did the exam, got out of there quick. Then they put the marks on the board. All these people are running up to it. And seeing the marks and everything else, and because a lot of those kids had been in Euro university in the first two years, they knew each other. So if you can remember, by the time you get to third year, class is not that big anymore, mm-hmm. maybe hundred kids or so. So everybody knew each other. I was a new guy in the block, so I had a different student number. Anyway, they had laid down the marks, and so people hovered around it. Why wait till go then I hear this talking, who's that number up there that who in the hell got the ninety six who got ninety six so I didn't know I was in the back, so I walk up well, lo and behold, it was me ninety six so I didn't say anything The son ninety six walked away, you know, and you know a few weeks later these I wanted to dig who who's getting the top mark? Well, they found it was my number well. Guess who was the hit? Who was that guy on their list to get yeah. hit on? I was <laughs> me. a new guy coming from a little college, you know, coming in there and just wiping them off. And you know, I when I went to school there, I was quiet. I just did my work. My friends were in in the residence and around, and I played hard with them. Didn't do much with the class. Just did my work. And th- but, but my even though I did my work, they didn't know I was competing with them. And I was in uh, almost ruthless with them because I wanted to put them down, almost bury them. So I was studying hard, working hard. You know, I didn't, I didn't show that, but I was doing it. You know, I was doing it. I was uh, the same competitors that drive right from um, high school or elementary to high school was still in university. And even when I did my grad, grad work, when I did, uh, did my dissertation, my PhD, damn, did that work hard. Enough. I wanted it to be the best. You know, I wanted them to say, you got a level one, you're through. You know, you know anything less than that, man, I would have been in tears. You know, I would have been pissed. Well, not yet, but I would be pissed. Okay? I'm not pissed at them, but pissed at myself for not... So any exam I ever did, I didn't do well, man, I was hard on myself. I don't blame the exam. don't blame the questions. All so right. I have a
0: very funny story related to what you were just talking about. So, right. And I think that lends itself nicely to, uh, I want to get your perspective as a professor as well, because I think you'll appreciate okay. it. So my, uh, my bad exam experience at law school, very fun. <laughs> Okay. All of them. Just kidding. Uh so uh kind of like how you were mentioning when you had your 90% uh final. One of the things that happened, so every for every module for every course is a hundred percent final. So it just you either it went well or it did not go well, and that was it, right? <laughs> so for tax law, really enjoyed the module. The professor was great. You know, content was good. Good group, uh, you know, good group of friends in there. Everything good. (laughs) So we're studying for the exam as a group of four of us. And so the way that our exam was going to go is, you get questions, and you had an option of three problem questions or three essays. So you could do two problem questions, two essays, or one of each, right? And and weighted fifty percent each, and that's your mark. So one of the, one of the, so we all basically prepared for the problem question, which basically relies on your practical legal analysis based on, right. you know, principles, whatever. And the other one, uh, I guess would be an essay. And so we had an idea on what essay topics were going to come up. Right. Okay. And so. Based on the module, there were only a certain. I think there were only three or four topics that could come up because they're essay based. So
1: really? it's nice
0: so you have a pretty good idea. Good idea. <laughs> so yeah. you know where this story's going. No, yeah, I know. So, <laughs> so I'll, I can only speak for myself. So what I did was, and and we talked to the professor, and we had like. We, he sort of did like a QA and a kind of thing for one of the last uh, tutorials. So we got a feel for what was going to come up on the exam. And so one of the things that we said was, oh, there's going to be this particular topic and it's going to be really good. It's really interesting, uh, particular tax bracket, uh, you know, blah, blah blah. It doesn't really matter. So I, I really studied hard for that, for the PQ, for the problem question, but for this essay. So. Right. You know, show up, you sit down, open the open the book, exam son of a bitch. <laughs> Nowhere to be found, right? <laughs> and so I can remember this so vividly. I remember sitting in my chair, and I remember immediately just panicking. I mean, it threw me off so terribly. And I was so I was, um, there's this thing that happens. I mean, you can relate and I'm sure you we've all gone through this where when you're in a current situation and rather than focusing on the situation at hand, you are thinking long-term thoughts. You know, I'm thinking my, my overall average is going to be shit. I'm going to be, you know, I'm not going to get a good job. I'm not, I'm in the exam chair. I'm thinking about my, my, uh, imaginary law job that hasn't happened yet, but yeah. that one I'm not going to get because I'm yeah, yeah. Uh, exam right. Mm-hmm. And so I remember, and I, I finished the exam. I did two problem questions and I ended up getting like a C plus. It was really not good. I was really unhappy with it, but it was what I, it was what I deserved. That was okay. the effort that I, because I panicked and, and it was really unfortunate because I knew that material at an a level no problem but besides the essay, I knew it at an a level no issue and because I lost my composure, I ended up you know with a, a poor grade but the the poor grade that I got, I also got a very valuable lesson uh, well a, a few and one of those is, don't be thinking long-term thoughts when you're you're in a current predicament. You got to solve this problem now. Solve it. You're fine. Yeah. Solve it. The other thing was as a when it comes to tests, a lot of people, and I'm sure you definitely would remember this from all your exams in university. Yeah. People coming out, oh, that test was so hard. That was so unfair. Yeah. Blah blah blah. I'm sure you've heard <laughs> that dozens of times, right? I've heard it. And oh yeah, especially as a professor too. Now I bet. And I remember thinking to myself, and I went, "Nope." You know what? Actually, that's on me because yeah. you can't blame a professor for. Oh, that question was too hard. No, no, no. What happened was you were not prepared enough. That's you. That's not them. Yeah. that's a you problem. Yeah, and so that was so animated every time, even to this day with my friends we will message each other and it'll come up every now and then we all laugh. (laughs) Oh my God. that test, right. You know? So it's a good laugh, but you got a very valuable lesson out of that. And basically it's just, it's on you and that's up to you to go out. And if you want the good grade, you better study and you better work and you better be sure that you understand the material. And for me, unfortunately, it wasn't even that I didn't know the material it's that in sort of a greater conceptual from a greater uh, conceptual perspective, I just didn't handle the pressure well. And then it it bit me in the ass. Right. And so I'm very curious as a professor, you've been a professor for over 20 years now. And so I'm curious about that experience dealing with students. Has your dealing with students changed in the sense that the, the students themselves, are they, you know, Trends? Do you notice anything different? Um, you know, just
1: in that regard. Oh yeah. <laughs> Where well, do start with this one? Okay, I'll talk from my perspective first. For me, as a professor, as the I have not changed. Mm-hmm. Um, I have not changed when the way I teach. Uh, I. I teach my tough love or I nurture students. Um, I, I have expectations. Like, do I lay my objectives? I lay my expectations. And the fir- first day of any class I teach at UBC, I tell the kids, first, you're adults. Mm-hmm. Okay, you're adults. So, you're at a, You know, first-class university, world-class university. We top 30, 40 in the world. UBC is world-class. And if you know what being in university is, it's to learn. Okay? It's not for me to teach you everything. So when I teach my renal course or pain course, I cannot teach you everything in nephrology. I cannot teach you everything about pain. But I can teach you about selected topics in those fields and teach you how to learn in that area. So when you go to practice and you see a patient with pain or with kidney failure or whatever, you will know how to work with them. You'll have a good thinking approach, a deal with it, a Socratic approach, questioning and you know, assessing the patient. You should be, you know, when I teach you, I'm gonna teach you how to think okay? We're going to go go down to metacognitive level here. So I'm going to teach you how to think about thinking. So when you get a problem, you're going to be thinking through it. And I'm going to guide you how to think systematically. That's what a university life is. So you should be thankful for getting that. So I I laid out on day one. So first, you're an adult. I'm not going to be dealing with You know, I have students come up to me, I missed the exam, I can't do it, can't have a makeup assignment. It's not high school, okay? You missed the exam, and you didn't tell me, you get a zero. No question asked. You let me know ahead of time, you give me a valid reason, fine. I either make another exam for you, or I add that mark to the final, and your final becomes more, it's one or the other no no discussion okay i don't want to hear i want an assignment i want this i want that. no that's not what you want <laughs> i'm the professor so it's not you know it, 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 it it's a dictatorship in a way here because i'm here for your best interest to guide you to become the best clinician you can be and this is the route i take so you know to be the best, you you know, when you see patients coming into through your door, into your pharmacy, whatever, you don't know who's coming in through that door. And you don't have a, a chance to redo that patient when you make a decision. Man, you make that decision, you better be accountable and responsible for that. It's a one-shot deal. You can't go, no, no, I want to redo for that patient, that drug made him sick, like, no, 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 no. That patient's in the hospital. No, you made the mistake. So, you know, I tell them, make the mistakes in class. Don't make them out there. So now, have was seen trends over time, students? Yes. <laughs> I, okay, so I you when I was a student, okay, going to biochem classes, my physiology classes, any class they took, do a loose loosely paper, walked into class, okay? The profs, you no know, writing on those acetates, yeah, no no prepared um slides, wrote an gave us hands out, handouts. And I and my really good profs only had three, four things written out. They would talk. Yeah. They go in front, walk back and forth, and talk about that topic. Okay, talk about it. And you would just be listening, writing down your notes, but listening to them, like we're talking. And just I was just absorbing everything I could in. Okay, wasn't well, I memorized I, I could go read in a book. But I just want to hear the way they explained it. Nice, and it flowed. And so one once one you know, I got hired as a professor, that was my number one goal. When I teach, I want to be in front, free-flowing, have my, even though I have PowerPoint slides, I just put three, four words on them. And I just talk. And the students go, where is the handout? Well, there is none. Listen to me. And make your notes like now you. They have so much knowledge at their hand. Internet, everything is there. Now I feel bad for them in a way. They have too much mm-hmm. in their hand. They're having trouble trying to wade way through all this material to find out what's important. And I don't think that's been taught well. So I'm not blaming a student for that. I'm blaming educators, and I want to. We have to teach them how to. Wade through all this stuff and pick what's salient and concise. And that's what I'm trying to do in my courses. I don't want to read everything. You know, just listen to what the lecturer is saying, listen to what we try and try to get across, get the salient point. You know, they all into, I want to record your lecture and listen to it later. Well, fine, that's fine and dandy, but don't listen to it just to record every word I put down. Listen to it to so you understand it, you know, like the way I would, if I was a student listening to a uh, lecture being recorded, I just sit back and listen to it and just try to think what and examine what and just write the odd word down rather than typing madly stuff, you know. Um, if you see really good professor on TV, teaching you know, on those movies, they're just talking there and asking questions and the students are engaged. So I, that's what I'm trying to um, accomplish in my classes: is the engagement. Talk to me. Let's, you want to talk about a certain topic in pain? Let's talk about it. You want to know about chronic pain or what is it? How does it work you know, from the brain going up and down and what drugs we can use, what not to use, what's first, what's that? Let's, let's discuss it. Different patient scenario. Let's just talk about it. You can't memorize it all. So... Now, back, so when I went to school, everybody was mostly a listener and, you know, we made notes. And as, when I got hurt, then I saw in the 90s, guys having tape recorders recording the props and people getting a little bit uptight and that kept going on. And then we hit the 2000s and kids are still not too bad, they're listening, but you can just see their backpacks are being full, carrying books and that. Everybody's getting a little more uh, anxious. Uh, in the 2000s, and then when, um, then in 2010, it just changed. You got the when you got the internet, everybody. Oh man, people started getting ultra competitive, getting their laptops in classes, writing and recording things down. And but what was as people got more competitive into the knowledge, common sense went out the window, just straight out, no thinking involved, no thinking about the guy beside you, helping the guy beside you, it was just me, 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 me all the way. And to right into uh, 2020, 2021, it was all me, me, me. Um, What's that me, me, me bit? You know, like in pharmacy, when you apply to that school, you know they're gonna place you somewhere in BC. So in second or third year, if you get placed in the cusp or in Cornell somewhere, and you start complaining, Hang on. When you applied, they told you they're put you anywhere. You know, uh, appreciate that. Go and learn in those communities. Help that community out. Look at it. It's a good way to learn. Learn who the docs there are, the pharmacists there. Get into their community life. Learn about that small town. Don't be afraid. You jump into it. But they don't think that way. I got to stay home. I wouldn't be close to my parents. You know, my parents have to drive me here and there. No, no. <laughs> Time to, you know, you're 20, 21, 22. Wake up now and, you know, move on. I moved down to UBC when I was 20 all by myself, okay? And then when I was 21, 22, I lived out on my own. Cooked on my own and that. You know, you learn to do that. You have to do that. You know, when I see um, kids getting dropped off at school by the parents, picked up, I'm going, these are university kids. Come on. Something is wrong with... And then I hear um, uh, other uh, uh, profs and myself too, parents contacting us. I say, hang on here. Who, who is the student here? You or your son or daughter? I'm, I'm going to deal with your son or daughter. Okay? What are you going to do when they start working in the real world? Go to their boss and tell them I, they can't do this and that? You know, you know, I'm uh, telling my kids, "Hey, you make a mistake, you do something else. Uh, you, hey, you're on your own. You know, you you're to you're late for work. It's on you. You come late to my class. Well, I'm not gonna w- wait for you or give you a makeup to tell you what I just did. You want to come late? You come late. Your choice. You want to miss my exam? Your choice." You know, I'm going to treat you like an adult. And, you know, back then when I went to school and in the 80s and 90s, kids acted like adults. That's what I noticed. Now, I'm not I'm saying kids are not about adults now. I think, and I don't blame the kids one bit for this, it's the parenting. And, you know, it's parenting gone too far, per se. They try to make life easy for the kids. I understand that that's a nice thing, but it can be you can swing the pendulum too far one way, catching them every fall, making the path easy for them. We all want to make life, I want to make life easy for my kids, mm-hmm. but I can make it too easy for them that when they have to survive on their own, they won't. Yeah. You want, yeah, as a parent, I think, you know, you have to open the doors for them a bit, but let them walk through it and make their own path. You know, when I think of the summer jobs I had, I had to get on my own, you know, of tree planting, working in an assay lab. So I, I worked, went for the jobs, and I had to apply myself. Didn't use my mom and dad. Didn't use their name. Went for the job that I wanted, and this was persistent. There's one job in an assay lab. I must have gone three years in a row just badgering that guy because I wanted, you know, I had a biochem background. I wanted to work in an assay lab. Oh, no. oh, and I was just, I was on his butt all the time. And the third year, his secretary's, uh, I got a job because of the secretary Secretary went to the bus. He's in every year, just gave him the job. Well, he gave me the job. And then by the end of the first year, he goes, You're the best employee I ever had. I just loved that job. I worked my ass off, you know, even though I was getting paid for eight hours or there, 10, 12 hours. I just loved doing it, you know, and that's, um, I don't, some some students have that, I see, right now. They have that, I'm going to give it and just go, go, go. But what I see in the majority is, this is my time, you know, I got to be in the pharmacy from 9 to 4, and that's it. I'm shutting the door at 4, my learning ends at 4. And I've never quite understood that, how does learning end at (laughs) 4? You get a patient patient at at 3.58, and no, it's, patient needs your help and you're going to learn something from it man if you have to stay an extra half hour you stay you know you 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 got to do that sort of thing and for the vast majority i don't see that you know that extra stuff they want everything to be made easy for them you know hand it to them and like i said i don't blame the kids it's the upbringing the way the education system is, you know, they, um, the high schools, give kids a lot of assignments, a lot of things to make up marks, and so the marks are sort of skewed. And different schools do different things.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: So, you know, it should be you give the exam, and the student gets assessed on what they, on that thing, and that's it. And if you don't do well, well, use exam as a formative assessment. Learn from it. Move on. You know, the next one, do better. Um, you know, that's why I'm a, a worried about these uh, kids now graduating, is how are they going to do in the real world? You know, when your boss says you got to be in at 8, you got to open the door at 8. You know, and you're one of these guys that comes in late to school all the time. Well, you got to open up at 10 to 8. You don't open at 8 o'clock. you got to be there earlier. And, uh, you know, and I'm like with my kids, I, I tell them if mom says we're going to your activity at this time and you're five minutes late, guess what? We're not going. Okay, we're not going. We, I've held the kids back a few times. Oh, there have been tears here, but you know what? Mm-hmm. You know, they they got to learn, you know? Uh, they don't pack their stuff and they, they're missing it there. Guess what? We're not playing today. You know, doing that, you know, I can't find my, um, my school uniform. Well, it's your responsibility. You find it, you put it away. You know, it's not, we have to pick up. Yes. When they're little, we can show them the right. I'm going to show them the right way to do things, but it's good. They, they have to learn. But like if we're always picking up for the kids or you no know, hand feeding them, driving them, um, to every activity that you know, when kids get older, they should learn to go to activity on their own. I remember I used to ride my bike to ones, take the bus, you know, carpool with friends, you figure ways to get there. You can't depend on mom and dad take you to every single event. You no, know, my daughter is 12 now. I said, no, and, you know, 12, 13, we got to start learning to use the bus now. Mm-hmm. You know, d- during daylight, go just practice. You no, know, my mom can go with you, I'll go with you. And you just lead the way, show me you can do it. There's a little bit of responsibility. And so that's why I don't see in the students these days that, um, you know, the common sense, um, they're worried about, now I'm not saying all of them, it's just a few of them, worried about what the questions are. What's the question on exams going to be? Don't worry about it. Just answer the damn question I ask. You know, don't, don't, Try to say what Dr. Berman wants, read the question, answer the case. That you got a patient case in front of you, do the best for that patient in the case. Don't think about me, think about the patient. And they're they also worried about what I want. But, you know, it's not what I want, it's what you, show me that you've learned something. Like I've always told the students, if I could, I wouldn't get grades. I would assess you about how much you learned in my course. Show me that you learned something. Come and talk to me for 10 minutes, 15 minutes about the topic. Show me that you learned something. If you can show me, that's perfect. Then I've done my job and you've done your job. You know, I don't need to give you an 80 or 90 or 70 or 60. I don't care what mark you get. Just show me you learned something. Explain to me how you're gonna take care of that patient. And like this year in my pain course, um, I had about 15 students and I was able to give an oral exam because I had a small class. So I was able to tailor it the way I wanted to. I could probe and all that. And I knew within the first five minutes who knew this stuff and who didn't,
0: mm-hmm.
1: you know, by probing and asking a question. And that was a good way, hard. That was a lot of work on our part, but it was it was a rewarding on the other end. Like I really got to understand who knew this stuff, who was comfortable, you know, and you can tell who the students were guessing at the questions and where, where some kids who did really well just you know, sat back, listened to the question, and answered it. Just, just answered it. Show me what, you know, they were not fighting for words. They just answered the question. So, you know, in a nutshell, what do you think of students today? Well, it's a lot different. They're not as uh, adult-like as we were in the past. But it's a different society, too. Mm -hmm. They they have everything. We didn't. Okay. So is it their fault? No, I don't think so. It's society, parenting, everything put together. um, has made them a little bit soft. I think soft is the word I'd use. And, uh, you know, rather than um, tough, like, you know, I, I was afraid to go to prof's office. Man, I would... "Quote unquote," is created shitless. To knock on it, I didn't door, no way. If I didn't understand something, I'd look it up. No one's going to knock on the door and say, "Hello, give me that?" Man, I get students on my door, knock, knock. Emails on weekends, like it's just uh, I, I'm uh, or oh, I'm. Uh, I have office hours, twenty four seven. Like that's what's there. With what this open communication. So what I'm getting at, you know, it's. I don't know if it's a lack of respect, but uh, they have to understand that I have my life, other parts of their life. You know, if you don't understand a question, talk to your classmates, look it up, figure it out. A lot of people don't want to figure these things out on their own. They want the quick answer, just like when they look at the internet, the quick answer. And that's one thing in society they want the quick answer. My kid is always looking for a quick answer. Well, I say, no, look it up, work on it. Show me your work. You know what? I'm asking the how and why questions, and sometimes my wife Gita, goes, "Oh no, you can't teach your kids like you're doing university kids." I said, "No, why? No, no." I said, "Same principles. Mm-hmm. They have to know the hows and the whys. Why do you do this? How do you do this? Sort of thing." So that's why instead of trying to my kids, but also when I try to some of the kids I teach. It's the house and whys. Why are we doing this? Why did you do that? Explain to me, describe this. Don't list me as this, because no patient's going to come to you with a multiple choice question. Here's my five things, pick the right one. Well, how do they know what the five things are? Now you have to know the answer and explain it to them. I picked this drug because of this, because of that. So, and you know, if something goes wrong, I, I worry about the student today. Being tough enough to handle it. You know, taking the onus on themselves, having the integrity, I made a mistake, let me fix it. That's probably the key where I say integrity is missing. Nobody wants to say, I did it wrong, let me fix it. They're really quick to say, I didn't do it or something, did it, or find trying to find an excuse. That's not the way it works. You want to solve it, you took. A problem in your own hands, um, and you made a decision. Be accountable for that decision. So, you know, I don't know if students in the past were accountable as much too, but you know, I think they, in a way, they were. But one thing I've noticed is that, that, like I said earlier, the softness, the toughness, going to students. You know, I unfortunately, I can make students cry. You know. I don't want to, but you do want to say um, you're being harsh and that. Yeah, it makes students cry. Back then, I never saw anybody cry. We were just, everybody was scared. Just do your work. You know, and um, I'm sure there was uh, some undiagnosed illnesses at that time, but now everything is more open. I don't know if being open is such a good thing mm-hmm. that we can fall back. Oh, I got anxiety. I got this. You know, rather than saying, man, I better pull up my pants and do the work. you know, There's a bit of that sometimes, I think. But there's a lot of stresses and pressure. I understand that right now in society. Expectations. So it's a lot different.
0: Yeah, you said a few things I want to touch on. <clears throat> uh, one of those things is as a, the thing that you have in common as a, a parent and as a professor is that you're a guide. And your your role as a guide is to just like how you said, how and the why. I'm going to teach you how to learn so that you can solve your own problems, how you see fit with all those tools. That is very valuable. And and that's no different than a a coach, uh, you know, professional athletes. The greatest gift you can give a good player is to coach them hard. You know, you want to give your And, and I had a lot of experience with this as a, as an athlete. And then certainly now uh, I'm, I'm my own coach. I'm an athlete and my own coach as well. And you have to challenge yourself in order to get the most out of you. You have to challenge yourself. You have to rise yes. to that occasion. And you want that challenge to be like maybe 20% outside or 20% past your current capability. Cause that means that you have, it's not so incredibly difficult that it's not possible to achieve, but you gotta, you're going to have to get down to it and you're going to have to work to make up for that 20 and you can, and you will, you know, if you, you, if will, you yeah. push yourself correctly, that's how you do it. You elevate, you know, just like how you said with, with your daughter, you know, we'll take you, we, you got to figure out how to use the bus. So first, we'll go with you. We'll show you. And then yeah. the next time you show us, you lead the way. So it's yeah. just outside that comfort zone where it's doable, but it's all, it yeah, also yeah. pushes you where it's a challenge and that you can make it up. And the other thing that you said that I thought was so true when, when you mentioned that the, the students are concerned with what I think as a the professor, they, they want to know what I think. And to me, that tells me they're thinking only of the grade, only of the yeah. number. Right. And I, you know, it's, you get that too, because, you know, especially from just being in university, you know, that was one thing that I really noticed was like, well, what does it matter? Do you know it? Do you know it well? And I mean, there's right. a lot of people that I know that. Okay, I mean, even for me in that tax law thing, if you were to look at my grade, mm-hmm. you probably wouldn't want to consult me on a, ta- on a tax issue. But if mm-hmm. I were to talk to you, if you're just, let's have a conversation about this, mm-hmm. I would be able to do a good job. Maybe yeah. not
1: now, because I haven't
0: started in a couple of years, but you yeah. know what I mean, <laughs> when it was fresh. No, no, exactly. <laughs> and that's just- no, But yeah, you had the knowledge. hmm yeah. And, and then lastly, I guess, is that idea of, yeah, you know, that- it's, it coddling is not good either, you know? And, and that's the thing, like you said, that when you coddle, then if you make everything too easy, I mean, what's the fun in that too? I mean, at the end of the day, you need something to, you you have to elevate, you have to elevate yourself and, and especially going into, you know, in, in your case, these people are going into pharmacy. There are real consequences for not doing your job well, you know, and and for yeah. myself too. I mean, of all the people in my law degree, uh, in my in my graduating uh-huh. class, there are a small group that I would ever trust to do anything. You know, if I needed a lawyer, out of my, I mean, small number, but I know that those people, they're yeah. going to be able, they're going to be tough, they're creative, they're diligent they take pride and ownership of their work and they want to do, they want to get the most out of themselves. And I can understand that, like from your perspective, man, that must be uh, a bit concerning at times where you're just like, man, this is just one soft kid right here.
1: (laughs) I know. I know. It's, that's why I'm worried. And uh, you know, you, you know, when you talk about competitive, I always, look at, I wanted to be in the group where there was people better than me. Yes. Whenever I picked it, I always wanted to be better than me. You know why? That'll bring me up. That's a challenge. I always pick that. So when I did, uh, you know, math, or say, say academics, I also look at the grade ahead of me. Can I compete with that kid? Can not compete with them? Because they all knew more than I did. Can I compete with them? Or when I played sports or band, I'd always go into a harder group. Yeah, I wasn't the best but man did it bring me up and I would be pushed and pushed and that's what I wanted to be. wanted somebody better than me so I can catch up and pass them go next level and so it's like running a wave you keep pulled by people along the way and your drive. so and it worked the other way so when I was doing this there are people on my coattails trying mm-hmm. to hang on to fine. I had no problem with that because then if I'm teaching them, I'm learning it too, just as well and even better. So, you know, and always, you know, my daughter suddenly goes, oh, I just want to do well. I said, yeah, yeah, I agree. Do well, but have that killer instinct in your mind that you want to be, to be the best, but do your best you can, but just have that little instinct that I want to get there first. I want to do well. You know, she She said, "I want to cheer for the other one." Well, I don't say don't cheer for them, but I mean, when you're doing it, just have a little bit of a extra drive, you know. And uh, that that you're born with. I'll be honest. I never had had it in sports and that, but I sure had it in academics, and I still do. Even in faculty, man, I still want to be the best in something I do. You know, I pick my area and I want to be the best in it, and you know for teaching and that you know for awards a little back a while back go I wanted to win every single award you know I won it for a number of years now I'm now I'm satisfied I've done it you know I'm moving, moving, you know if I win another award, I'm great you know but I'm not not gonna um, lose sleep if I don't win it and somebody else wins it I'm more than happy. Sort of thing. So, yeah, but you are right. You want to challenge yourself, having someone just a bit above you, so you can do well and and not be coddled to get No, to be pushed, and that's what, how I teach. I'm trying to push the kids a bit. So some find it hard, and you know I, I'm too hard, but I'm just doing it for their best interest, not mine. Mm-hmm. That's my approach to teaching and all that
0: yeah no i i think that's perfect and you know the greatest competitor that you you have is within you right i mean from from you know just listening to you for this last you know little while here i mean i think that's probably one of the biggest takeaways through this whole thing is that you know the the drive to succeed and the drive to overcome is within and you have to just not ever let go of that, you know, because that'll exactly. It, it, and that's the thing; it leads to just like you said earlier. You know, you look back and you go, "I have a great family, I have a great job. Wow, things really did work out." You know, yeah. And a lot of people, you know, sadly, would not have that attitude, and that's really unfortunate because they're missing out. They're missing out on the picture. a lot of stuff. Yeah.
1: No, I'm very thankful for what I have right now. And Would I trade it in for anything? Not in a heartbeat. <laughs> Not in a today, right now. Someone say if I give you right now, you can be on your feet in that. You know, I could be be nice, but you know what? What I have now, I wouldn't give it up for that. In a million years, no way. Yeah, that's fantastic. Well.
0: I know we've been going for a little while here and I, I hate to cut it short because yeah. I know I, I, I just love doing these. This is so much fun talking to you too, Aaron. I mean, yeah, i so appreciative of your time, time. I and mean, this is fantastic. So, uh, just kind of, we got a few seconds here but uh, just in conclusion, uh, you know, any final remarks from you at all?
1: No, I really enjoy this podcast. Um, but, You know, just a general point, just, just be positive in life to everybody. Uh, treat everyone as you want to be treated, uh, you know, and it, even if something comes up unexpectedly, you know, just handle it with ease and with a positive attitude. Don't get too hung up on things. Um, life is too damn short for that. Okay. When you think about it, you know, our life is so short, in the big scheme of things. So just appreciate every minute.
0: Fantastic. Well, thank you so much, Aaron. I really appreciate it. It was great to see you. And
1: uh, hopefully we'll be seeing you in person soon here too. Oh, we got to (laughs) connect. All right. Thanks, Marcus. Great job. Thank you.